Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is author, journalist, and environmental activist Mark Linus. He's a frequent speaker around the world on climate change, biotechnology, and nuclear power, and was climate change advisor to the president of the Maldives from 2009 through 2011. In 2013, he was appointed a visiting fellow at Cornell University's Office of International Programs and now works with the Cornell Alliance for Science, which is funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. His books include Six Degrees, Our Future on a Hotter Planet, winner of the 2008 Royal Society Science Books Prize, The God Species, Saving the Planet in an Age of Humans, and most recently, Nuclear 2.0, Why a Green Future Needs Nuclear Power. Mark Linus, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks very much for having me, Michael. Uh, you know, let's start with just a little bit of your personal history. How long have you been involved with environmental causes and what got you interested in the first place? Oh, well, I've been an environmentalist since about the age of six. Um, these things always, I mean, it's its something that you kind of grow up with. It's, uh, it's kind of an identity as much as anything. Um, the first time I remember being concerned about an environmental issue was in Peru when I was growing up and I could see some of the, the, the disastrous pollution of some of the rivers from uh, mining waste that um, that you could find in that country. And I remember being concerned about vehicle pollution. I even wrote an essay on global warming when I was uh, in school sometime in the mid-1980s. So it's something which is a passion which has been with me for a very, for a very long time. And um, it's one that I still have today. So, you know, first and foremost, as my identity, I, I consider myself an environmentalist. Now, your book, Six Degrees, had what I thought was a really interesting format with those chapters entitled One Degree, Two Degrees, Three Degrees, and so on to Six Degrees, and then you end with a chapter on Choosing Our Future. And so I was hoping you could talk about why you chose that particular format and, and what it represents. Yeah, well, it's 10 years old now. I keep thinking I should do an update, but um, let's see, see what's changed, because we're sort of midway through now the first degree chapter, you know, in the sense that... It certainly seems like um, global warming is accelerating, and some of the things that I was talking about as the first signs that we would be seeing, such as the widespread disappearance of coral and, say, the Great Barrier Reef, these things are already underway. Um, same with the rapid disappearance of the Arctic sea ice and uh, other signs of the melting of the cryosphere, which is sort of the ice-covered regions around the world. So it's, it's, it's almost as if we're living through... Um, the scenarios that I was describing in Six Degrees um, in fairly short order, um, just, just a decade after it was first written. But, you know, the concept at the time of, you know, it was it was a huge literature review. It was almost like I was conducting my own IPCC um, effort. You know, I literally went through hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of, of papers in the, all the different peer-reviewed journals in oceanography, geophysics, glaciology, um, paleoclimatology, and you used all of those as, as a way to kind of piece together a degree-by-degree degree picture of what the planet's um, future might look like if, as the temperature rises, one degree, two degrees, three degrees, four degrees, right away up to six, potentially, by the end of this century. So it was it was kind of a warning of, of a catastrophic future, and the final chapter was about um, the, the kind of the agency that we have as, as humanity. We can decide through our greenhouse gas emissions over the decades to come, which future we end up in. Our first sponsor today is Brooklyn It. Sheets, you've got them. You probably sleep under them every single night. They're, they're the underwear of your bed. And 
Just like a great pair of underwear can make a surprising difference in how you feel, seriously, though, maybe that's another story, so can sheets. And let me tell you, I can say from personal experience that Brooklinen makes great sheets. And better yet, while they're top-end luxury quality, they don't have that luxury, incredibly marked-up price. I love my Brooklinen sheets, and if you try these sheets, I know you'll love them too. And Brooklinen.com has an exclusive offer just for Politics Guys listeners. Get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code TPG at Brooklinen.com. In fact, Brooklinen is so confident you'll love your new sheets that they offer a risk-free 60-night satisfaction guarantee and a lifetime warranty on all their sheets and comforters. So there's no reason not to give these sheets a try. Now, the only way to get $20 off and free shipping is to use promo code TPG at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code TPG. Brooklinen. These are the best sheets ever. You know, I, I know you mentioned that it's been a while since Six Degrees came out. And actually, I wanted to ask you about that because, of course, given all of the scientific evidence you compiled for that book, well, that's even older than that. And so I'm wondering, what's your sense of how the situation has changed in these intervening years? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. There's been one or two controversies, such as whether there was a global warming pause dating from, um, I think it would have been 1998 up until 2014, 2015. Um, you know, that debate has more or less gone away, given that the last three years have been hotter than the, than the previous ones, and each one has set a world record for, for rising temperature. So it's, uh, the, 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 it does seem like the, the rate of climate change is accelerating, um, and the, the damages that are resulting from that are, are, are accelerating, as you would expect, too. Um, I, you know, it's, yeah, so as you say, most of the material that went into Six Degrees is now 15, even 20 years old. Um, I don't get the feeling that there's been a, an enormous sort of change in any of the literature sources. It's just been more information of, of a sort of fairly similar nature added to the pile. But, you know, if I had time, I'd love to go back and do a kind of 15-year update because... I'm sure there's a lot more and, and some some revisions that one could make as well. Yeah, that would be that would be really interesting, I think. You know, I, I'd, I'd like to ask you a, a few questions to respond to a few things that I hear from what I'll call climate change skeptics. And, and one of those things is for, for some of my friends who will will say, well, yes, temperatures are rising. We don't. We don't uh, dispute that, but this is a natural phenomenon that's gone on throughout history. And so really, this is just nothing necessarily all that out of the ordinary uh, is that i assume that's an argument that you reject right well it's an argument here all the time i mean it's basically seeking to to replace the explained with the inexplicable um i mean we un the the causes and the drivers of global warming um as we're currently seeing it are fairly well understood and fairly well quantified so you know we know through the through through atmospheric physics how much extra heat is being captured from the sun um, through the increasing greenhouse gas concentrations that we've seen in the atmosphere as a result of human activities. Um, and that's called the, the, the global forcing. You know, it's a couple of watts per square meter. Um, and so all of that extra heat is being dissipated around the Earth system. A lot of the debates about where exactly it's going, whether it's going into the oceans, whether it's going into the upper or lower atmosphere, whether it's melting ice and, and so on and so forth. But in terms of the overall 
imbalance between heat coming in from the sun and heat going out again as long-wave radiation from the planet. Um, there isn't really much dispute uh, about the fact that heat is being captured by the Earth system, and it's pretty much in line with what you'd expect from the increasing greenhouse gas concentration. So all of the all of the doubts and the skepticism really is politics. Yeah. Now, another thing I hear from many climate change skeptics is that global climate models have consistently gotten it wrong and in a systematic way, always predicting consequences far more dire than have actually occurred. Now, you've looked through an awful lot of this, this data and these predictions and models. Is, is there anything to that, do you think? No, not really. I mean, it was true that, um, that the models were above the trend line up until a up until a couple of years ago, um, during the so-called hiatus, um, but that that's something which happens, you, you know, because the mod, the models and well and the temperature trend lines are all, always going up and down. So sometimes it's going to fall out of the overall envelope, and sometimes it's going to be right within the middle. So it's uh, I think the, the temperature trend is now pretty much within the mi the middle of what the models were projecting back then. But you know, it's it, science is a working progress, and, and models are constantly being updated and constantly being refined. Um, and all, all models are is um, a lot of mathematical equations which try and approximate what we think we understand about how the atmosphere works you know you, if you had time and you you know you had a, a a few hundred years to do it and you could work it all out on the back of an envelope if you wanted to so it's not there's no witchcraft going on there uh, and the models will only be as good as the understanding and the knowledge of the people who built them so it's not a perfect art but it's it's a good best guess of uh, of what the climate is likely to be doing over the century to come and how that links to the greenhouse gas emissions and concentrations that we expect. And do you get a sense that those best guesses, those models are getting better over time, are being refined over time? Yeah, I think they, I think they are getting refined, but they're also getting more complicated. And because more things keep being plugged into the models. So they didn't used to have a very complicated representation of the ocean, for example. Uh, and now there's a lot more of, of that in there. And the ocean's a, a really important heat driver for the, for the atmosphere uh, and so on and so forth. But that makes them all, all a lot more complicated. And there's a lot more equations being solved all the time. And you need a much more powerful super, supercomputer to do it. Uh, I, I mean, it's ironic, really, that the models aren't really saying anything different from... Um, what Arrhenius and the original pioneers of climate change science um, pr projected right back in about 1890, which is about a three degrees increase for a doubling of CO2 in the atmosphere up to you know around 550 parts per million. So uh, you, you wouldn't, <laughs> you could expect uh, things to change a bit on one way or another, but by and large, this has been a well understood science for quite a long time. Right. Now, sort of a variant of this and maybe something that I have a little more sympathy for is this argument that the media has a tendency to sensationalize climate science by always sort of seizing on the most apocalyptic possibilities, you know, the sort of the, the worst case scenario trend. And and some would argue that, well, what that does is it it essentially sets people up for that worst case. And then when it doesn't happen, it sort of tends to discredit the science in the eyes of many in the public through no fault of the scientists, but because the media is just being sensationalistic. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, I have some sympathy for that concern as well. I mean, you really don't want to cry wolf, um, certainly not all the time. And sometimes there is a linkage of uh, disasters and droughts and even wars with climate change. I mean, I, I strongly dislike it when people talk about the Syrian war being an impact of, of, of climate change in some way or another, because 
you, you just know it isn't. I mean, you can have a very serious drought and it doesn't lead to civil war somewhere. So the, the political and social and economic factors are always so contingent that um, having sort of uh, having climate as a sort of uh, a driver for these really complex human affairs, I think, doesn't doesn't make much sense and is probably counterproductive. I mean, I've even seen climate change uh, mentioned in the same breath as sort of tsunamis and earthquakes and things. So there is a tendency to ascribe every single disaster to, to, to global warming. And I think that's one that you have to you have to guard against. And, you know, there's been a lot of work, actually, and the IPCC says this, too, that there's very little evidence so far that uh, climate change is, may, is making natural disasters worse. Even even floods. I mean, there's some evidence that droughts have been getting more intense, and there's some evidence too for more intense rainfall. But how that actually translates to flooded cities and so on is is much more complicated, because humans are constantly changing our environment. You know, here, here where I am in Oxford, uh, we we've had some pretty severe floods in the last few years. But then there was also a big flood in 1947. You know, the, there's been a lot of drainage work done. The built environment's very different. There's houses where they didn't used to be, and so on and so forth. So adding all these complexities into the picture means that you can almost never say, well, this is singly due down, down to climate change. If you're a politics guys listener, which, you know, obviously you are, I think it's safe to say that you're interested in learning about current events, history, and, and, you know, maybe even picking up some interesting trivia here and there. And so I've got a recommendation for you. One of our fellow Audio Boom podcasts, Court Appointed. Now, Court Appointed co-host Mike, a lawyer and a dude, and Tommy, just a dude, aim to educate and entertain while exploring where laws and all things legal, even just barely, have originated and how they currently apply. You know, I sample a lot of podcasts, and very few of them make it to my permanent list because, um, well, you know me, I'm really picky about a lot of things. Now, Court Appointed, Court Appointed is on my, that permanent list of mine, not just because it's fun to listen to the great rapport between Mike and Tommy, but more important is that I actually learn things worth learning from their show. For instance, they did a show on the history of impeachment that I thought had some great context and historical information. And another episode I particularly liked, they examined the sometimes weird-seeming concept of corporate personhood and how it came about. Great stuff. So if you're looking to add to your podcast listening experience, check out Court Appointed in the comedy section of both Audioboom and iTunes. Again, that's Court Appointed with Mike and Tommy. Now, one thing, at least an argument that my my politics guy's co-host Jay always makes, and one I sort of associate uh, to a certain extent with Bjorn Lomborg, is that we shouldn't shackle the economy with environmental regulations, even though climate change is real, but instead we should kind of let markets do their thing, and then that increased economic growth and innovation from free markets is going to lead to ways to minimize the effects of climate change that are going to be a lot more efficient than what we currently have available to us now. Uh, what do you think about that argument? Well, I don't know. It doesn't fit with my politics. And so it's difficult to, to, to distinguish that from, uh, you know, any kind of scientific thing. Also, I'm the guy that threw a pie in the face of Bjorn Longborg back in 2001, I think it was. So I'm not exactly neutral on him. Um, although I think in some ways you're doing him an injustice if you paint his argument as just being a kind of neoliberal one. I think it, he, he often talks about um, opportunity costs, that if you spend a dollar on, you know, um, water and sanitation in developing countries, that's better spent than a dollar on climate mitigation in terms of saving lives in the here and now. And actually, there's a lot of truth in that. Um, 
but uh, it doesn't hopefully have to be one or the other. I mean, if we don't spend money now on mitigating climate change, then there isn't going to be much worth living for in 2080 or 2090 if emissions keep growing as uh, business as usual rates. So we sort of we have to do both. And that doesn't mean fooling ourselves that cutting emissions is going to be stupendously easy or we can suddenly all go renewable overnight and, and so on and so forth. There's a lot of wishful thinking out there, too. And I think we do need to guard against that. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Now, a few years after Six Degrees, you wrote The God Species, in, in which you suggest some solutions, I think, that many people on the left have major issues with. Uh, one of these is the use of nuclear power. Uh, so do you think that nuclear power has to be part of any environmental solution? And, and if you do, why, why do you think so many people, particularly on the left, are so very opposed to nuclear power? Well, the politics of this thing is very is always very interesting, and it's the same with GMOs. So both nuclear and GMOs tend to be opposed by the left. Um, and I'm not always sure exactly why that is. I mean, nuclear used to be, because, particularly because it's very statist, I mean, nuclear power stations are best built with very dirigy state-run uh, economies, like happened in France, say, in the 1970s, 1980s, or in Sweden, or in some of these other European countries. Um, then, I mean, nu nuclear, is, it's going to be very difficult to build more nuclear power stations in a, in a market, privatized market system, particularly if there's no carbon price and there's no, uh, there's no incentive not to carry on burning fossil fuels. So actually, you know, to, to, <laughs> the, the left-wing arguments for nuclear, I think, are just as compelling, if not more so, than, than uh, the kind of market perspective that a lot of people have. And I don't know, I think, I think it's, there's just a lot of political narrative baggage going on here where in the past nuclear was at least nuclear weapons were campaigned against by by people on the left and kind of nuclear weapons and nuclear power always got mixed up in the same basket oddly it's, it's a bit like and, and then people stopped campaigning against nuclear weapons and started campaigning almost entirely against civil nuclear power which is bizarre really it's like swords into plowshares where they stopped campaigning against the swords and started trying to ban the plowshares instead so the politics of this is very very strange and, and very twisted, but there's a lot of path dependence on the left where nuclear was seen as this sort of uh, very centralized kind of corporate industry with, with dastardly PR operatives and, you know, all the films about people being secretly killed in order to stop the news coming out and the China syndrome and all of these kinds of things. So there was a, a narrative which was very strongly created that nuclear was just was just a bad thing and that we all needed to sort of dance around the windmills and solar panels instead. Now, and if I understand the science uh, correctly about this, there are vastly more deaths and negative health outcomes attributed to the fossil fuel industry than to the nuclear industry. That's right, especially coal. And, and what happened with a lot of the anti-nuclear campaigning in the 1970s and 1980s, and this is not well known, is that uh, proposed nuclear power plants or even half-built nuclear power plants were converted to coal. Um, you know, the, the places where the reactors were going to go were they just put boilers in there and they, they started burning coal. And then the, new, then the environmental protests all went away. So in some ways, the environmental movement of that era made the world safe for continued burning of coal. And that, those coal emissions are responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths from particulate pollutions and, and other things which are fairly well understood. In contrast to radiation, which is much, much safer than most people think, uh, coal dust and, 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 and air pollution from burning fossil fuels is much more dangerous than people tend to assume. Um, I mean, the, the science is fairly clear on this, but it, the, the politics and the kind of intuitive nature of the feelings, you know, pe people are 
often very radiophobic as the term. They're very scared of, um, of radioactivity. And you could see this with, with Fukushima, um, which was a, a significant rate release of radiation, but everyone thinks that lots of people died from it, which is not true, or that lots of people get cancer, which is also not true. Uh, I mean, these, these are, are disasters, absolutely, but they're not comparable with with real human catastrophes that kill a lot of people. Right. And I guess it's true that also that coal tends to kill people far more slowly. Coal tends to kill, kill people what? Far more slowly than, say, you know, radiation poisoning. We see a disaster like the Fukushima, where if you're a coal miner and you get black lung, that's, you know, that's decades maybe for you to die, essentially, whereas uh, the nuclear is right away. In many cases. Well, maybe, but in Fukushima, nobody died from radiation poisoning, even acute radiation syndrome. Um, so, I mean, in, in advanced economies uh, where you have fairly high safety regulations, um, these things are manageable. They're not pleasant, but they're manageable. Um, well, the only example where we, which we have of people dying in a civilian nuclear power disaster was, um, was uh, Chernobyl. And the overall death toll there stands at about 50. And, and all of those were from... Um, from, from acute radiation sickness at, at the very early stages where people got very, very high doses because they were being used as liquidators and firemen and so on and so forth. So that was a good example of how, of how not to do it. But all of these things have become sort of stains on the whole idea of nuclear power. And so public perception of the, of the real risks of it um, uh, have, have become completely out of whack with what the science would be telling us. And that you know that matters because nuclear potentially could be a major contributor to cutting carbon emissions. I mean, it's the only large-scale source of, uh, of of constant power that we have, which is non-fossil fuel, except for except for hydropower, which also has serious environmental consequences. And by the way, dams can break and can also kill thousands and tens of thousands of people too. So there's no such thing as a hundred percent safe power source. And of course, wind and solar have their major problems as well, in particular intermittency. Um, it's still far from clear that you could run an advanced industrial economy on wind and solar only, despite what some of the advocates say. Our final sponsor for today's show is ZipRecruiter. Do me a favor. The next time you're at work, look around the office. Honestly, don't you wonder how some of those people got hired in the first place and how they managed to keep their jobs, considering how astonishingly incompetent, annoying, and unreliable they are? Maybe some combination of all three. Well, I will tell you how. Unless they're someone's cousin or brother or something, and maybe that's the case, there's a good chance it's because good help can be really hard to find. And that's where ZipRecruiter comes in. With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100 plus job sites with just one click. Then their powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job better than anyone else. And that's why ZipRecruiter is different because unlike those other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you, it finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. And with ZipRecruiter, there's no juggling emails or calls to your office. You just screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. So, hey, find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, Politics Guys listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, free, as in no money. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash politicsguy. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash politics guy. One more time so that even if you're listening to this part of the show at three times normal speed, you'll still be likely to catch it. To post jobs for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash politics guy.
Now, you, you mentioned GMOs. I'm glad you did. I wanted to bring that up. Now, it seems to me the conventional wisdom, at least on the left, on GMOs or and in general, is that organic is the way to go because GMOs are basically a way for big agribusinesses like Monsanto to reap these huge profits that hurt small farmers and as well as GMOs being a very serious danger to the planet. But you actually... Our support GMOs, and I was hoping you could explain why. Well, GMOs are, I mean, that's not really a scientifically meaningful term, but it's one we all use because we kind of know what we're talking about, which is the debate um, on, on, this, on the use of uh, molecular breeding. Um, but the technology can be used lots of different ways by lots of different actors. So to kind of dismiss GMOs as a class and say those can only benefit big corporations is, is somewhat illogical. I mean, it's like trying to ban the wheel because you've got big, big car companies or, you know, banning computers because, you know, Microsoft used to have a monopoly on operating systems or something. So really the counterpoint to that would be to say, well, let's use the technology in, in the public interest. So let's have non-patented public sector open source approaches, which uh, expressly aim to benefit small farmers. And that's actually what I've been working, working on more with Cornell Alliance for Science in the last few years, where we've been in Bangladesh and in Uganda and uh, other African countries where there are GMO projects which are philanthropically funded, developing drought-resistant crops, disease-resistant crops, um, pest-resistant crops. So they're aimed at they're reducing pesticides and they're supporting the livelihoods of smallholder farmers uh, who get them, of course, royalty-free uh, and, and so on and so forth. So there are lots, lots of different ways to use this technology for the benefit of smallholder farmers. But Oddly enough, the anti-GMO people oppose all of them. So they don't want smallholder farmers in developing countries to be able to use this technology to improve their livelihoods either, which I find very strange and very concerning. Now, sort of the other anti-GMO argument I hear centers around the idea that if you manipulate you manipulate these crops, you can end up with something, well, unintended consequences that could have catastrophic, uh, catastrophic consequences for the food supply of the, of the globe. Is that, I guess you, you would argue that's overblown. Well, it's not just overblown. It's just kind of nonsense waffle, really. I mean, yes, you hear this all the time, but you could make that as an objection to almost everything. You know, maybe we're talking on Skype and I'm, I'm on a mobile phone. Maybe there's some consequence of this in 50 years time, which we can't comprehend, which will mean that we all have our brains fried. And, you know, you could, you could construct, a, is that a reason then to ban the entire technology now and stop everyone using phones? Well, you'd have a lot of problems convincing people of that <laughs> because the, 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 the immediate benefits are so obvious. There's, I mean, there, there really is, it's difficult to conceive of any intrinsic problems with recombinant DNA, which haven't already been identified over 30 years now that it's been, that it's been used. Um, uh, you know, the, the mechanisms of, of how DNA works are pretty well understood. So it's really just a kind of intuitive superstition that people have about it. And it particularly comes down to the transgenic aspect. So the idea of putting, moving genes between unrelated species or even kingdoms, you know, a bacterial gene into a plant. People just go, oh, you know, oh, that doesn't seem right. You know, you can think about think of it like imagine putting a scorpion gene in your, you know, your your bread your pasta or something, you know, for in, into wheat. I mean, it just seems it seems disgusting, right? It kind of triggers this emotion. But of course, you know, as we already share I don't know a, a large percentage of our genetic material with scorpions anyway because we're all animals. So uh, I think a lot of it comes down to a kind of species essentialism, which predates our understanding of molecular biology, which is that that DNA is a, a universal. 
um, code for 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 you know for information, which creates the organism, and people just don't feel that. You know, they feel that we're all different, and that there are certain boundaries that shouldn't be crossed, or you know, God alone should be in these areas and that kind of stuff. So, this is all kind of cultural, religious, um, emotional stuff, which uh, it's very difficult to to make a scientific argument out of. Um, and people will always come up with reasons why they don't like the feeling of it or don't like the sound of it. And there will be pseudo-scientific justifications for that. But ultimately, it comes down to a kind of emotional knee-jerk. Right. Now, earlier in your career, you weren't as positive about GMOs. Is that is that correct? Uh, that is correct. I was an anti-GMO activist of sorts. I used to go out and destroy them in, <laughs> in nighttime raids. So uh, I certainly know what it feels like to be on the other side of that argument. Yeah. Now, uh, moving on, I'd like to get your thoughts on the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, sort of my view that is, is, while it's not nearly enough, it's certainly a step in the right direction and should be at least somewhat uh, applauded. So I, I'm wondering if you agree with that or not. Well, I've been involved in the UNFCCC process for many years, and I've watched the whole sort of climate regime evolve from uh, a kind of a Kyoto-style architecture where you have a treaty-based system with with top-down enforcement mechanisms, or at least the ambition of them, to a kind of bottom-up pledge and review system, which everyone really back in the day opposed as being this sort of uh, terrible thing that only the Americans were proposing. And that's pretty much what we've ended up with at Paris. Um, and I think it because of because of what it is, it's not binding on any party. Uh, it allows countries to propose what they feel able to achieve, it should be a lot easier to, to carry out than, than a, a stronger top-down Kyoto-type um, uh, effect. You know, and it makes it even more sad, really, that, uh, that the uh, dysfunctional American political system has, you know, that at least one half of that Republican Party has felt the need to, to, to reject the entire thing. Um, I mean, I, I know you didn't ask me about Trump and the, the, the rejection of Paris, but you know, the Trump administration could just have said, right, we're going to uh, get rid of Obama's pledge and we're going to replace it with a 0% pledge or even a 30% increase. They can say what they like within within Paris because it's so flexible. That, that's how it was designed that way. So a lot of this, very it's very sad, but it comes down to kind of political symbolism that, that they just wanted to put two fingers up to the world community and to climate change activists in particular. Yeah. How much of a setback do you think that the U.S. withdrawal from the agreement is? Um, it, it could play both ways. I mean, I've written, I wrote a piece for CNN about this, and I sort of hoped that it would lead to everyone else basically coming together because you sort of rally around to defend Paris when it's being threatened by the, the, the Trump administration. Um, and I think that's sort of what happened at the, uh, was it the G19 last weekend? Um, I mean, there was a statement released which pretty much left uh, Trump isolated but within the bounds of, of normal diplomacy. Um, so it, it doesn't look like any other countries are going to peel off. I mean, in the past, when it was the Bush administration, it was always the Canadians who gave cover to the Americans. Um, that's not going to happen, obviously, with Justin Trudeau. Uh, similarly with Australia, I think they've moved on too, which was always the other sort of US partner. So America, in terms of in, in, to take such an intransigent position, uh, really does isolate this administration, uh, you know, because I think the majority of Americans, and you can see this in statements from mayors and so many different states, do not side with Trump on this. 
Um, and I think a lot of Americans are very ashamed at uh, how their country is being represented by Trump at the climate negotiations. Yeah. Now, I would think one, at least potentially, silver lining for that is that the withdrawal doesn't become complete until right around the time of the 2020 presidential election. So presumably, if what I hope happens will happen, then the United States will be able to get right back, right back in, essentially. Right. Yeah, that's certainly and I think that delay was built into. <laughs> built into the architecture expressly for that purpose, almost like a kind of cooling off period. Um, but who knows what will happen? I mean, I'm sure Trump will run for a second term. I mean, it seems inconceivable. And, uh, you know, I I would lie awake in a, at night or I wake up in a cold sweat thinking about it. But imagine if Trump was to win a second term, you know, so it could it could well happen. Um, and the rest of the world will have to figure how to get on with um, dealing with climate change in the absence of, of the United States, or at least in the United States government. I mean, what's more interesting is to ponder why we got to this situation at all, and how the US response became so dysfunctional and so out of whack with the, really the whole of the rest of the world. Right. Now, currently, you're with the Cornell Alliance for Science. You're a visiting fellow there. And so I was wondering what your work there involves. Well, mostly our work, as I was describing earlier on, is, is focused on biotechnology in developing countries. Um, but we also you know, look at the, the different battles, really, to defend science that have been going on around the world. So we were very involved in the, in the global march for science that happened uh, last April, on April the 22nd, when I think it was 2 million people marched in about 600 different locations to defend science from attacks from all sides of the political spectrum. You know, the attacks on, on, on the science of GMOs might come from the left, the attacks on the science of climate change might come from the right. And I think we've got to try to be as non-ideological as possible and to, and to defend the whole concept of the scientific method and empiricism in general. Um, and, and I think that, that does also go out to people who talk about climate change. You know, you need, they, you need to make sure this isn't just a left-wing campaign issue and that you can include people from across the political uh, ideological spectrum in, in how we tackle climate change as, as science tells us it's, it's unfolding. Absolutely. Uh, in the end, are you hopeful that the world will take the steps needed to it? Well, if not entirely prevent the negative effects of climate change, at least to minimize their severity in, in a significant way? Well, I'm, I'm always hopeful. That's just kind of, <laughs> that's just kind of my personality. I'm not, I don't really do pessimism. And plus I'm a campaigner. I'm an activist still. And you don't really get anywhere if you're a pessimistic activist or a pessimistic campaigner, because you're always looking for the best outcome and trying to think of tactical and strategic ways to get there. Um, I mean, for me, adopting nuclear power as a cause was one was as much a political tactical maneuver as anything. Um, yes, nuclear could be an important contributor to, to cutting carbon emissions, but also it tends to appeal to people from the right. So it's a way that, the, you know, conceivably the, the Republican Party can re-engage with climate change is to build more nuclear. I mean, I don't really care whether the cat is black or white so long as it catches mice. And um, I, I think that it would be potentially useful if more people um, tried to cross these some of these divisions, because we won't... We won't win climate change by defeating the right. You know, the right isn't going to go away, um, but we somehow have to figure out how to entrench warfare and find things that we can all agree on to move forward on this. Yeah, definitely. And that's not just true for climate change, for sure. Uh, I have one final question for you. Aside from your work, which I would encourage people to, to look into, what resources, you know, books, authors, documentaries, really whatever, would you recommend to listeners who want to get a, a deeper and new and more, say, nuanced understanding of environmental issues? 
Um, well, that's a tough one. I mean, there's a couple of movies that um, documentary films that I've actually been in, so they come to my mind first. The one on nuclear power was called Pandora's Promise and was released uh, three or four years ago. There's one on GMOs as well called Food Evolution, which is um, showing in theaters now and across the US in different places. So, and will probably be, I'm sure it will be available online in due course. So please check that out as well. And there's all sorts of brilliant books out there and there's so much information that it's difficult to keep up with it all but um you know we have to we have to all try and stay well informed and also you know i, I think it's also it is good to challenge yourself with with contrary perspectives so i read some of the stuff that climate skeptics put out there's always a chance that they'll be right about something and i'll learn something too so try i, I try and having been wrong in the past about gmos and other things i try to maintain some uh, some level of humility, which I might not have had before. I, I, I think that's I think that's so very valuable to do, and I wish more people did that. So, uh, with that, we will close. Uh, Mark Linus, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Michael. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this Politics Guys interview. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors. Brooklyn, where Politics Guys listeners get $20 off and free shipping when you use promo code TPG at brooklinen.com. Court Appointed, a podcast where co-hosts Mike and Tommy educate and entertain while exploring where laws and all things legal have originated and how they currently apply. And ZipRecruiter, where Politics Guys listeners can post jobs for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash PoliticsGuy. Listener support is a huge help to us, and we truly appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon link. If you want to support the show without spending anything, you can share this episode with your friends and followers or pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. The executive producers of The Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. The show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Sunday. We hope you'll join us.